Welcome into Twin Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. David, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing really good. Excited to get into our athlete posts this week. This week, I think we have a couple exciting ones, and we're gonna get started right away with our athlete of the week, and that's Baker Mayfield. So, since the month of June is represented by the number six. Each Monday this month, we've took a look at the best players to wear the jersey number six. Our fourth number six is Baker Mayfield. Mayfield's coming off his third season as a starting quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, one of which ended their long playoff drought this year. Mayfield was the number one overall pick in 2018 from the University of Oklahoma. At OU, he was the Heisman Trophy winner and one of the most prolific passers in college football history. Mayfield set the rookie touchdown record in his first season, one which he did not start every single game. That record's since been passed by Justin Herbert, but Mayfield has the Browns as much watched television for the upcoming 2021 NFL season. So taking a look at Baker Mayfield, he's a young, exciting quarterback in the NFL, and he has a bright future, especially with this Cleveland Browns team that has so much talent. When you look at Baker Mayfield and everything he's done so far, where would you rank him among quarterbacks in today's league? I'd put him probably in the top 10. He's been just fantastic for uh, for the Browns. And just being with the Browns and being a good quarterback that can start multiple years and be a pro bowler is bringing consistency to a position for a team that has been anything but been basically a uh i'm blanking on the word but just a carousel uh going to different teams every year or going to different players every year uh but he's definitely top 10 for me it helps that he has just fantastic weapons around him but he's still a very talented quarterback yeah baker has a lot to like and i think he's only getting better so i've talked about it when i rank quarterbacks i like to put him in tiers because that's more favorable than just a number on that said quarterback so I kind of tiered out a quarterback list until we get to Baker Mayfield here the best in the league obviously Mahomes Rodgers Brady that's my tier one of quarterbacks then you get to the elite guys so that's my top three then you get to the elite guys Deshaun Watson Josh Allen Russell Wilson Lamar Jackson those guys are in the elite category they're above those guys I just named are above the rest by a good margin then you get to the the great to good quarterbacks. And in that tier is where I have Baker Mayfield. You have guys like Tannehill, Dak Prescott, Justin Herbert. I expect Herbert to get into that elite category by the time this uh, next season's over. But for now, I have him right there. Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield. Now that category, depending on who they play each week, shifts. Who has a better game? But he's in that good to great category. Then the category behind that, you have your average guys like Kirk Cousins, Matt Stafford, Matt Ryan, uh, Derek Carr, and Jimmy G, and some other guys, Jared Goff, just kind of that average quarterback. You get stuck in the middle. But when you look at what Baker's done, I think it's fair to say he's good to great, and I think he does get underrated in terms of how, how much value he brings to the Cleveland Browns. Yes, they have fantastic weapons. But last year, he had to deal with no Odell Beckham Jr., who he still not found a great connection with. But imagine adding Odell at his best with Baker Mayfield in this Browns offense. It gets even scarier. I think Stefanski is going to get Baker 
improved in this upcoming year and just consistency all around among the coaching staff, I think is going to be huge for Baker going into next season. And so yesterday we had a birthday and that birthday was Kurt Warner, NFL legend turned 50 years old yesterday. Kurt Warner was signed as an undrafted free agent following the 1994 draft by the Green Bay Packers, but he'd be cut before the season began. He started to bounce around in Arena League football a little bit, and it was not until 1998 that he would see live game action for the St. Louis Rams. And in 1999, after a preseason injury to Trent Green, he led the Rams to a Super Bowl victory. Over Warner's 12-year NFL career, he was a two-time NFL MVP, four-time Pro Bowler, and a two-time All-Pro. He would lead the greatest show on turf to two Super Bowl appearances and the Arizona Cardinals to one as well. Warner was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2017. So, wishing a late happy birthday to Kurt Warner. And I have a little trivia question for you here, David, when it comes to Kurt Warner. I talked about that gap that Kurt Warner had from Green Bay to the Rams, arena football in there. Do you know what Kurt Warner was doing after he got cut by the Green Bay Packers before he picked up arena league football? Ooh, um, I don't know the answer just right away, but I'm going to go with uh, being a taxi driver. Taxi driver, it's along those same lines. He was working at a high V. He was stocking shelves. That's what Kurt Warner was doing. I think that's what makes his story so interesting, was he went from stocking shelves at a high V, not in the league, to a quarterback who made three Super Bowl appearances, won one of them in the NFL, uh, Walter Payton Man of the Year, all these great things he did, all-pro player. It is truly a great story to follow with Kurt Warner and just also how he got thrusted into action after the Trenton Green injury. He wasn't supposed to play, and he was able to have a great career. So now, looking at Kurt Warner here, where would you rank him among the all-time greats? Do you think Kurt Warner is a top-15 quarterback of all time. I'd say he's a top 15 quarterback of all time with the caveat of that being in the Super Bowl era. I think if you add in older quarterbacks, it's it gets a little harder to uh differentiate just because uh the style of play was very different. So, within the Super Bowl era, I'm going to say he's he's definitely a top 15 guy. Uh two MVPs a pro bowl or a couple pro bowls super bowl champion he led the league in completion percentage for 3 years touchdowns for a couple he's just a great quarterback and he wasn't fantastic in the later parts of his career but he was consistent he was consistently very talented for 10 years there were a couple years in the middle where he was uh injured but after that, once he retired, there you could see his season numbers were very in line with his average per season. He's a very consistent player. Yeah, Kurt Warner, for me, he's right around that 15 mark. I'm going to say he's just outside for me, but very close to a top 15 guy. And when you look at what Kurt Warner did, for me, it was that middle that you talked about that I think differentiates him from these other top 15 quarterbacks. The injuries and the kind of just lull in his career there he had with the Giants, I think that hurts him a lot in terms of his all-time status. But also a fun fact here, Kurt Warner played three Super Bowls, and he was 1-2 in those Super Bowls. 
but Kurt Warner threw a game, a go-ahead touchdown pass in each of the three Super Bowls with under three minutes to go. So you look at the Patriots, it took a Tom Brady drive to win it, Tom Brady's first real big comeback game-winning drive to win that Super Bowl for the Patriots, and then it was the San Antonio Holmes catch that stopped him from winning another Super Bowl. Could you imagine Kurt Warner's career if he had those statistics and he had all those accolades and give him three Super Bowl championships? Those numbers would be fantastic. And also, you look at what he had with the Rams, he was kind of the start of this prolific air raid offense. He was one of the founding people of that. He, st- he was a part of the greatest show on turf with Marshall Falk, Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce. They went to two Super Bowls together. He continued that with Larry Fitzgerald. And a lot of people forget how good Larry Fitzgerald was early on in his career, and especially with Kurt Warner. That playoff run they had to the Super Bowl was fantastic. They were one of the best duos in the NFL at the time. So Kurt Warner, just outside the top 15 for me, but could very much see how he would be in someone's top 15 quarterbacks of all time. And now, today in sports, the Cleveland Cavaliers would select point guard Kyrie Irving with the first overall pick in the 2011 NBA Draft. Irving would go on to play six seasons for the Cavaliers. During that time, he would be a member of the All-Rookie Team, win Rookie of the Year, and be All-NBA once. He also would help lead the greatest series comeback in NBA history with LeBron James to lead them to their first NBA Finals victory for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Irving was pivotal in Game 6, scoring 41 points and and then hitting the go-ahead bucket with under a minute to seal a Game 7 victory. He requested a trade following the 2017 season, bringing his time in Cleveland to an end. So, obviously Kyrie Irving was very talented still. Very talented player, one of the best point guards in the NBA. I'm a big fan of Uncle Drew. But looking back at his career, do you think his decision to demand a trade after that finals loss will haunt his legacy? I think it definitely could have a negative impact on how he's perceived. Uh, After demanding a trade, it definitely kind of puts an asterisk next to him because that signifies some character issues. Most players don't go out in the media and say, I want to be traded, trade me now. And another thing that adds to that, when he was traded to Boston, he wasn't all that good. He was like, he was okay for his standards, still a talented player, but Boston couldn't really get a whole lot going in the playoffs with him on their team, and he moves on to Brooklyn, which, again, just one, well, yeah, just one season, full season, and they didn't win in the playoffs, so there's, uh, it definitely brings down how people are going to think of him once he retires. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That's kind of when the perception changed of Kyrie Irving was after he demanded that trade, because the Cavaliers had been to three straight finals. He was hurt in one of them, so they didn't win that one. He plays the full series, and they come back down 3-1. Then, obviously, the Warriors add Kevin Durant. But you look at that last finals victory Golden State had where they swept the Cavaliers. Game one almost went Cleveland's way after a blunder by J.R. Smith. But you put Kyrie Irving on the court, and they steal game one in Golden State. That team, the Warriors' mentality, was starting to shift a little bit. Draymond and KD were starting to get into it a little bit more. That's when that all started. You put Kyrie on that team, Cavaliers steal game one in Golden State. Who knows what happens in that series? It was after 
that play by J.R. Smith that you could tell mentally LeBron James has moved on. He was leaving. He wasn't going to play again. And that's the way it was. If Kyrie stays with the, with the Cavaliers, who knows? Maybe LeBron James sticks around. I think a big factor for LeBron to come back to Cleveland was Kyrie was developed and he was ready to go when he got there. Him leaving, I think, sped up that timeline for LeBron to move on one more time because the Cavaliers were in no position to compete after that. I think it will haunt his legacy because I think LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, that duo, was just getting started and could have been one of the more dangerous ones in the NBA. You look at that game six. They each score 41 points apiece and beat the Warriors. Come back down 3-1. The greatest series comeback in NBA history. I think there was a lot left on the table when Kyrie demanded his trade. I didn't like it then. I still don't like it today. So I do think it will haunt his legacy. And speaking of Kyrie Irving and his new team, the Brooklyn Nets, Nets go up 2-0 before they blow the series lead and drop to the Milwaukee Bucks. So looking at this Brooklyn team, they were crowned very early on when they got Durant, Kyrie, James Harden, that this team should win it all. And I think that was fair to say. They should have. What went wrong with this Brooklyn team that led them to a second-round exit? They just, they, defensively, they were not great. And their stars were hurt. You could see Kyrie obviously just not on the floor. And then past that, James Harden didn't play a couple games, and then overall, just not very good. Just not playing up to what he should should be doing. Kevin Durant had to do pretty much everything on that team, including rebounding. He was their leading rebounder in the series. Overall, they just kind of fell apart without those stars. It really showed off how how much lack of depth they had. They couldn't, there was no next guy up. It was just kind of hope, hope someone's not terrible. And with that, Joe Harris played extremely poorly. He shot 32% from three. That's nowhere near where he should be shooting. So just another kind of notch on against the Nets. Yeah, obviously that did, that was not great. What they had, injuries, was huge. This series was a downfall for the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie on the court, James Harden on the court, healthy with Kevin Durant. they probably get out of this series. I think that's fair to say. But I saw when the Bucs, they came back and they won their game to make it 2-1. 86-83 victory. I thought it was like a third quarter score. I was like, no way that that was the final score. And it was the final score. And I didn't think all too much about that game. I, I thought, okay, you know, it's just one time. You're not going to hold the Nets to 83 again. But what it did, and I think is going to be a huge step forward in his career as well, is it let Giannis gain some confidence in the postseason, something that he's been lacking for the last two years. And you see him kind of, what he does in the playoffs is not a regular season Giannis. He's not been the MVP. Game seven, he showed up. You could that's MVP level play. 40 points, 13 boards, 5 assists, and you play 15 minutes. That's the type of guy that's putting the team on his back and he's ready to win. This is a big shift for Giannis in his career. He has a huge opportunity ahead of him. At a series that begins the night with the Hawks, he has a huge opportunity to 
just jump his legacy forward, what he's going to leave behind the NBA. I was very impressed with Giannis in this series. Everyone counted them out in the media, said the Nets got this, especially when they went down 2-0. The media started to do the same thing last year with the Miami Heat. They counted the Bucks out. Okay, they're going to, the Miami Heat, I think they win this series. And it just seemed like it got to this Bucks team. Like it, it did. They weren't playing the best basketball they could. That started this series as well. But that 86-83 victory, I think the Bucks realized, hey, we can compete with these guys. We can defend these guys well. They're banged up. We should be the favorites. And that's what they went out there and did. Giannis had a fantastic game. And Kevin Durant also, in the final minutes of overtime, didn't play his best. But I don't think that's a knock on Kevin Durant. He had a fantastic game and a fantastic series. So now looking at Kevin Durant, should this series loss have a negative effect on Kevin Durant's legacy? I think so. It's definitely he couldn't take that team and really take control and win games for that team. He he did his absolute best, but there wasn't anyone around him. So it's part of it will be on Kevin Durant. There are a couple plays where he just takes some bad shots or doesn't or isn't making his shots that are really on him, but it's also there really wasn't anyone around him to be good or be good enough to win games, but overall losing in the playoffs is a negative for Durant's legacy. Yeah, this this team was supposed to go to the finals. That it was win the finals or bust for this team when they came together. So I'm going to look at this two different ways here. Should this have a negative effect on Kevin Durant's legacy? In my opinion, I don't think it should. I mean, you look at the injuries that he had. This Nets team was built around those three, and two of the three were injured, one not even playing. So for me, I don't think it should. But I will preface by saying, if we're going to hold Kevin Durant in the same light as we hold LeBron James... Yes, we have to. This has to be a negative effect on Durant's legacy. We saw LeBron this year, and with those Cavaliers teams where there was no help, nobody there. Those were negative knocks on LeBron James's career. They're things that get brought up about him. The same should be said for Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, I said a couple weeks ago, I think he's the best player on the planet, and I still believe that. He played fantastic in that series. I truly believe that. But with his stars hurt, it was role players that needed to step up. Blake Griffin played kind of like the next best guy on that team. And Blake Griffin hasn't played all that great in about four or five years. So now you look at, okay, well, Durant played well. Why would that be on his legacy? LeBron plays well. He took the Cavs to a finals with J.R. Smith as the next guy with them. LeBron James took a series of six with Matthew Della Vadova as his next best guy with them. If we're going to put Durant in the same light as we hold LeBron James, it's time to keep that same energy with Kevin Durant. This should be a knock on his legacy. But like I said, personally for me, I look at the outstanding factors. And both of them played well in those series, just could not overcome it. But this is interesting. When you look at Kevin Durant, with the Warriors, finals MVP, multiple championships, but you couldn't just guard him. You had to respect Curry. You had to respect Clay. You couldn't just guard him. And he was kind of had some free reign on that team. With the Thunder, they struggled. 
they obviously made to the postseason, did well, got there, but then against the Warriors, struggled. Then they only got made to the finals one time. It was in 2012, and it was a very young, very young Thunder team. Got knocked out before then every other year. This season kind of reminded me of those Thunder teams for the Nets in terms of when it, biggest moments there, Kyrie out, Harden up, or Harden's playing, but still banged up, not 100%. Kind of reminded me of Russell Westbrook with Kevin Durant in the series they blew against the Warriors. Durant played fantastic. The next man up just isn't enough. It's not enough. So it's interesting to talk about what this series does for Kevin Durant, but it certainly will not do him any favors in terms of him trying to take that title as the best player on the planet. And so now looking at this Bucks team, we've talked a lot about the downfall of the Nets. Let's talk about what this win says about the Bucks. It's a very positive win. What do you think it says? Honestly, I don't think it says a whole lot. It's more on a it's more of a negative for the Nets, them just kind of falling apart than it is the Bucks rising to the occasion and defeating a team. They they really have not been very good. They've been able to hang in with series because of Giannis's just ridiculous talent, but their offense is stagnant at best, at the very best. Most of the time, it's just guys isoing right away. There's no movement, no pick and roll, no off-ball movement, and it's just one player, mostly Drew Holiday, Giannis, or uh, Chris Middleton, taking a tough shot as... Uh, the shot clock runs out, and you're not going to win like that. Defensively, they're pretty good. Uh, there's definitely Brook Lopez is a liability, but they they need to be better, and I think that starts with coaching. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this Bucks team, I was impressed by this series because it was a big victory. If the Bucks would have lost this series, and the way it looked, down 2-0, a five-game, six-game series was going to happen – and the Nets were going to move on. If they lose this series, I mean, it might be time to blow some stuff up. I mean, this team needed a lot of work. And this offseason, they were supposed to add these key pieces that were supposed to help Giannis out. They weren't performing. Giannis wasn't playing at his best. I think this series takes a step forward for this team because they're finally past the, the everyone saying, oh, they can't do it. They can't win. They can't win against the good teams in the playoffs. They did it. I think it takes you a step forward. But I agree with you. This next series says more about this Bucks season than anything. Because now you got past the Nets. They were the team. The Sixers are out. Now you have the Hawks. If the Bucks don't go to the finals, that's a problem. This Hawks team should and I this Hawks team's a dangerous team. Trey Young, one of the better players in the NBA, talked about him last week. This Hawks team should not beat this Bucks team. They shouldn't. This Bucks team, when you look at what Giannis, you have a two-time MVP, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton. They should be moving on. So what does this win say for me? You guys got your confidence back. You guys got a big postseason victory, something Giannis hasn't had yet. But I still need more. There's no reason you shouldn't go to the finals now because you are the best remaining team. Do you want to end up like the Sixers and get upset? Do you want to end up like this Nets team, how we're talking about them, getting upset when they should have went to the finals? This next series says so much about the Bucks' season, but this series win, I think, is huge for the confidence. I think they have to carry it over, though, 
into the next one. And now looking, you talked about coaching, how it's still not that great, and they stagnant. They got through this one, though. This series victory, do you think it buys more time for Mike Budenholzer? Maybe a little, and I'm going to say very little time. And it gives him enough time to stay with the team during the playoffs. There was some talk, mostly just internet uh, rumors, of Coach Bud possibly being fired during the playoffs, and I wasn't against it. I think it could have made them a lot better, and if I'm the GM or the front office of this uh, this Bucks team, I'm moving on from him regardless of if you win the finals or not. He just... Unless he does a complete 180 and changes up the offense in the finals, if they get there, that is, I'm moving on from him. He just has not been a good modern coach. He just, he isn't there. And that's what's dragging your team down. Yeah, I I personally, I agree. I, I don't think this buys any more time for him. If anything, the target on his back has gotten bigger. Because now... You got past the Nets. You are the next best team. And especially with the Sixers gone, there's no reason, like I said, that you shouldn't be in the finals. I think that target's bigger. This Hawks team is very hot right now. Not I, I don't know many people that expected the Hawks to make it to the conference finals. And I think that just goes to show Trey Young and how his developments really come along. But you should now go to the finals. And when, when you look at the other side of the bracket, Clippers, Suns, the Suns team up 2-0, getting Chris Paul back for Game 3. In my opinion, and we did a poll on Instagram, they were the favorites to win. Um, that's what everyone said. I think they got about I took, they took about 90% of the votes saying that they would win the NBA Finals. I, did you look at this Bucks team compared to them? I don't think they can beat them with this offense. The Suns shoot the lights out. They're fantastic scoring. Devin Booker in the mid-range. Chris Paul in the mid-range, deadly. And they're deadly from behind the three-point line. You look at this Clippers team, Kawhi Leonard, we don't quite know what's going on with him. There hasn't been an official ruling, but it's said that he's going to miss some time. But I don't even know if the Bucks could beat a team like that. Because I called out Paul George last week, and he really showed me what was up. He came out here and played fantastic, got him past the Jazz. I will say, though, PG you got to hit those free throws and win game two, but we'll get to that a little bit later. In the end, Brutenholzer, this doesn't buy him any more time. The only way he gets more time is if he makes the finals and they compete, and it's like a six, seven-game series. That's the only way that I could see anyone argue that, yes, he should have a little bit more time because outside of that, this Bucks team last three, two, three years has supposed to been, go a lot farther, it's supposed to be a lot better in the playoffs than they have been. So for me, no. This doesn't buy any more time for him. He's just now doing what we've expected the Bucks to do the last two years. So now, before we take our first break, we're going to hop into these this Hawks-Sixers series. Hawks upset the Sixers and advance to the conference finals. Trey Young played fantastic, but the opposite point guard, Ben Simmons, didn't play all that great, especially at the very end, giving up a shot that was called out by Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid for him giving up that shot at the end. Do you think Ben Simmons has become more of a liability than a positive force for this team? I'm going to say no, but 
if they used him correctly, he would be definitely an asset. And looking at the stats, he has positive win shares. He's performing well, but they aren't utilizing him as they should because they're thinking that Ben Simmons is the number two option next to Embiid. He's not. He just can't score like a number two option. There is no jump shot at all. If you look at this year, 87% of his shots have been from within 10 feet of the basket. He just won't take anything else. And it's not that he's missing them. It's just won't even attempt them. He Guys can take three, four steps off away from him because they know he's not even going to try and throw one up. If you look at a guy like Giannis, he is not the best shooter from outside or even from mid-range, but he's still willing to put up an open three, put up an open mid-range. That's what Ben Simmons needs to do to be a viable second option on this team. But if they were to use him as a third, fourth option, get some legitimate scorers into this lineup, in this rotation, I think he can be a, a great piece on this team because of how good he is defensively and with the ball in his hands. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying in terms of he does need to take a step back, and I agree, kind of go down the line in terms of those scores on this team. I'm going to say he is becoming more of a liability just because when I look at it, Ben Simmons, what he was drafted, how high he was drafted to come in here, they expected him to be number two at least to Joel Embiid, if not the guy for this team. And I agree 100% with you. Just taking shots at least scares the defense a little bit, makes them adjust to you. He's not doing that. He has no confidence whatsoever in the mid-range, no confidence in the three-point line. And if you're not even going to attempt these shots, defenders are just going to play off and take away what you like to do best. And how he's responded to it has been poorly. He hasn't come out there and started to get a, get a roll going from the three-point line. No, you don't have to shoot 10 a game. You're not Steph Curry. But a couple a game, start to get a confidence, a feel for your three-point shot. If you could even be below average, that would be good. That would work for this team. But for me, I think he is a more of a liability because at the end of the game, game on the line, 10 seconds left, you're on offense. Do you really want him on the court? Is he your best option on the court? I I don't think he is. I don't think he's your best option out there. And he can be, like you said, a 3-4 guy in terms of scoring. But at the same time, 10 seconds left, I got one shot. I, I don't trust him to hit a jump shot. Don't trust him to hit three-point ball. I really don't think he needs to be on the court at that point. Doc Rivers kind of called him out after the game a little bit. They asked him, can he be the point guard of a championship team? And he said, along the lines of, I don't know. And I'm with them. I'm not quite sure. Ben Simmons needs to have a big summer. He needs to work on that jump shot because if he cannot develop that, I can't see how the Sixers are able to keep him around, especially with contract demands later how they can keep him around, especially how high he was taken. So we're going to take our first break here on Sportsman Light Conduct. When we come back, we're going to keep on looking at this Hawks Sixers series. We're going to get into Simmons a little bit more. Doc Rivers, should his job be safe? Don't go anywhere. 
Welcome back in to Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KLA HD2 in the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And before we went to break, we were talking about that Hawks Sixer series, specifically Ben Simmons. And was he a liability or a positive for this team? And now, looking at Simmons, we obviously both of us were not impressed with what he's been doing. Would you explore possibly trading Ben Simmons this offseason? I think you just being a good GM means at least a little exploration, seeing, all right, what what are other teams valuing this guy at? How much could we possibly get? But as of right now, I think you need to keep Ben Simmons at least until probably the trade deadline of next year because right now his value is at an all-time low, just in the tank. And you're just going to be getting pennies on the dollar right now. Whereas if you let him kind of show, all right, he's not absolutely terrible, you're probably getting quarters on the dollar instead. So if you do choose to move him and just go a different route, I think you can get more value if you trade for him later. Yeah, I agree with you. I think later is better for this team. Value. Also, I want to see, right now, he has something to prove. Chip on his shoulder. I want to see how he responds this offseason. What he looks like when he comes back into camps and practices. I want to see how he looks. But I just can't help but look back. For two Eastern Conference teams, specifically the Heat and the Sixers, both teams rumored to be interested in James Harden. The Heat didn't want to give up Harrow, Duncan Robinson, but Harrow specifically didn't want to give him up. The Sixers were also very interested until the very end, but Ben Simmons was kind of the no, I'm not getting rid of him. And would James Harden have won this series? That could be debated. But when I look at just the pure talent, what James Harden can do healthy and his skill set, I think it would go hand-in-hand with that Joel Embiid. It would be a scary guard-center duo, and that's not necessarily something you see a whole lot of in today's league you see more of the forward uh, two forwards type of deal but Harden and Bede to me that would be scary in terms of if you're looking to trade him talk about value coming back your way you're not going to find value of James Harden you're not going to find a top five player and no top five player is going to get traded for Ben Simmons right now so you had that opportunity passed on it and I've talked about some other guys that needed to get moved, like Chris Stops. I've talked about him and Kemba. Guys I'd like to see moved. With Ben Simmons, though, it's different. I'm not just giving him up to free up money and things like that. I'm not doing that with him. So for me, I agree with you 100%. Hold on to him. See if you can get that value up because at the end of the day, if it doesn't go up at all, you're better off almost just letting him walk out the door because that's what you're going to get in the long run if you try trading him right now. So now looking at the head coaching job, Doc Rivers. This is now a couple times, obviously with the Clippers, and now with the Sixers here, Game 7 loss. Series lead, blow the lead, Game 7 loss to get knocked out. Should Doc Rivers' job be safe? I'm going to say no. You did make it this far in the playoffs, but you needed to be better. This team had finals aspirations, and... You didn't really make it even that far. And I think it 
really focuses on the utilization of Ben Simmons. You need to get more scorers on this team and have Simmons just be a ball handler and a passer. And obviously they don't they don't fully have the roster to do that right now. But if you get probably another scorer, you need to put those other scorers above Simmons. You need to have Seth Curry getting more time with the ball in his hands and really focusing as a shooter. And I think that's that's possible, but a good front office here would be exploring the idea of going in a different direction coaching-wise. Yeah, I think the coaching position can get improved. That's the way I'm going to put it. Is his job safe? I'm not going to say it is, but I think it can be improved. And that's what they need to look into. I respect and think Doc Rivers is a good coach in the NBA. I think he used to be great, but I think he's a good coach today. Now, if you find a better option out there, you see someone that hits the market or you've had your eye on someone for a little bit now, it may be, it may behoove you to go in that direction. But for me, right now, I'm going to say that they keep them. Um, I don't see, when I look at these coaching options out there, I don't see many better ones. And when you look at some of these other positions that are getting filled, Celtics filled their coaching position today. Then obviously with the Trailblazers, they're looking at Becky Hammond, I believe, from the Spurs, which I think would be a good hire as well for that organization. I think for now it's safe. Should it be? No, but it's safe for now because I truly believe I just don't see a better option right now. But once that option becomes available, I could see them moving off of Doc Rivers. And it could be a little bit of a surprise. Like, let's say, end next year. They actually make a decent run, and they get rid of him. Because this is kind of setting itself up to go in that direction. And one thing, we talked about Ben Simmons earlier. Seth Curry had a fantastic series. Only 31 minutes in Game 7. You look at, the he was the third leading scorer on that team. With only 31 minutes, the guys ahead of him were Toby Harris with 45 minutes and Joel Embiid with 41 minutes. Ben Simmons had 36 minutes and only scored 5 points. I just don't see how a guy like that is not getting more minutes. So, it's interesting, especially it's your son-in-law. I think he should be getting some more minutes in that game. He's been one of your better player players in the series. So, now, look at this Hawks team, though. We've talked about the Sixers. This Hawks team... Dangerous, exciting, young, and they're the underdogs. They shouldn't be here, but they shouldn't. Some people could say they shouldn't have been in the last series. They've played fantastic. How shocked are you, 1-10, to that this Hawks team has made it this far and has themselves in a position to go to the finals? Right, like, initial reaction is, like, 7 or 8. But when I really start looking at this roster, it it doesn't surprise me as much as I thought it would. There's a lot of talent all over the court. Trey Young, obviously, one of the best scorers in the league. Same with Bogdan. And you have really good defensive play in the middle especially and rebounding with Clint Capella. And you pair that with John Collins, and you have a pretty good presence down low. I think... If they could add a second big name or just another really good 
scorer, you could really seriously contend. But as of right now, all of the scoring burden is on Trey Young. Right now in the playoffs, it's he's a little bit under 30 points a game, and he has to be that good. Honestly, I think if somehow the Hawks could get Ben Simmons, it, it seems like a good fit. Add a couple uh, shooters around him. I, I like that idea, but I don't think they have a chance against the Bucks. Yeah, this this Hawks team, I'm gonna say about an eight. That's where I sit with it. Um, with I picked them to lose to the Knicks because just because the Knicks were so hot. Well, the Hawks ended up being the hot team. Took that victory in that series, and that one it was kind of a toss up for me which direction I wanted to go. So it was okay. You know, it's a nice win, but this is where it ends for you guys. Seven games with the Sixers going down early in the series, comeback victory against a team that some expected in the NBA Finals. That surprises me a lot for this Hawks team. And also, not to say it's a shot at the Eastern Conference or any of those other top teams, but just goes to show kind of the Eastern Conference isn't that great. And this large gap, and this Bucks series also will have a say in this, but this everyone kind of thinks, okay, it's so top-heavy, three teams in the East. I think that large gap that everyone thinks is there isn't as big as some might think. This Nets team, I know, was hurt, but this Sixers team just got beat by the Hawks, and they had everything going right for them. This Hawks team, I mean, wasn't supposed to compete against the Sixers team. I think some of these smaller teams in the Eastern Conference, some of those lower seeds, are starting to catch up to these top-tier teams because some of these top talent are performing. The Nets... Top talent not performing, not playing. 76ers, top talent not performing. This Bucks team, starting to figure it out a little bit, but same case for them. Top talent wasn't performing. Can the Hawks catch the Bucks in a series where they're not playing at their best? I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be fun. I'm very surprised by this Hawks team, but they're a lot of fun to watch. Trey Young, one of the better point guards in the league. I said top five point guard last week. I think he helped solidify that. And I talked about who I'd rather have, him or Ben Simmons. I went with Trey Young. He solidified that for me, too. He was fantastic in that series. So I'm very shocked by that team. But looking at the Hawks versus Bucks now, this series, I think you look at who's the better team. I think clearly on paper, you could see kind of who the better team is. What do you think, though? I think it's just purely on paper, it's the Bucks. They have, they're better defensively. And I think they're a better team offensively as well. They just can't... They're not showing what they should be able to show on offense. And again, that's because of the coaching. But I don't think there's a guy I would really trust to defend Giannis. On, I don't think there's a guy on the Hawks roster who can defend Giannis. And then past Giannis... You have to have someone guard Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. It's it's going to be a tough series defensively for the Hawks. The one thing I don't think they're going to have to worry about is Brooke Lopez because Clint Capella is probably going to lock him down. Brooke Lopez, I'm I'm just not a fan overall. So it's the Bucks are the better team on paper. Yeah, I agree. I think they're a better team on paper. Coaching-wise, I don't think they're the better coach team 
in terms of what they do there. But when you look at this Hawks-Bucks matchup, you have to, when you look at these two teams go at it, you have to give it to the Bucks. You have to. And I don't. I think that is clearly, clearly on paper you look at that. But also, I think there's something to be said that while, yes, I think the Bucks are a much better team, I'm interested to see how the series goes. I really am. I'm not so sure if they come out on top. Now, when we get into our predictions in a little bit, I'm going to pick the Bucks to win. But deep down a little bit, I really want to go with the Hawks here. I really do. They're exciting, young, confident. This Bucks team, how much can they carry from this last series? That's what I want to know. How much can they carry over in this series? Because they're finally figuring it out. They have to be able to bring that into another series. It all starts with Giannis, like you said. The Hawks don't have someone that can guard him. He has to perform the whole entire series, just like he did in Game 7. He's got to show up. If he can do that, the Bucks can win. He's not proven that he can do that in the playoffs consistently. So let's see if he can become more consistent there. Now, looking at Hawks or Bucks in this situation, does the winner of this series even stand a chance against a possible Suns or Clippers matchup? No, I don't think so. Uh, there's... I think maybe they have a chance if they play the Clippers, but it it doesn't look good even then. I think the Clippers are just a superior team, which feels weird because I'm not a big fan of what the Clippers have going right now. Uh, but if the Hawks win, I think the Clippers beat them. If the Bucks win, maybe you could have a discussion because I think the role players on the Bucks are a little better than what you have for the Clippers, but if the Suns take the series, it Suns are going to win the championship easily, in in my eyes. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Suns are fantastic, and I take like I take what you said, Clippers, Suns, I take that over any of these Eastern Conference teams that could come out of it, especially if it is, let's say, even the Clippers. At that point, I don't know the severity of Kawhi Leonard's injury. The details are not out, like I said earlier, but if Kawhi Leonard finds a way to play in that series, he's proven that he can lock up Giannis. He did it to win a championship of his own in Toronto. And without Giannis, this Bucks team's in trouble. Then you look at Chris Middleton. You have guys on the Clippers that I think could match up well against him. He's not consistent. I don't think they do either. I think whoever comes out of the West will represent. Um, will be Whoever represents the West will be the finals champion. And now looking at this Hawks-Bucks series, you pick a winner, and in how many games? Who's winning? Hawks-Bucks. I'm going to go with the upset here. Uh, I'm going to go with the Hawks just because the Bucks coaching just just isn't it. It isn't it. So I think the Hawks are going to be able to shoot the lights out, but Giannis is going to be able to drag the Bucks to stay in the series. So I'm going Hawks in seven. I think it's going to be a really good series, and I'm very excited to watch it. It's actually going on right now, uh, almost done with the first quarter, but it's it's going to be great to watch. Yeah, I think it's going to be exciting. It really will be. I'm going to go with the Bucks in six in this one. I didn't expect the Bucks to be here, but I didn't expect the Hawks to be here. Part of me deep down wants to go with the Hawks with you on this one. It really does because... It's hard picking against the hotter team, in my opinion, and right now that's the Hawks for me. I think they are the hotter team coming off these two series victories. And this Bucks team, 
almost feels like they kind of got away with one in that series against the Nets. It feels like if a healthy Nets team plays, they probably done in five games. But so I part of me wants to go Hawks, but I'm going to stick with my gut. I'm going to go with the Bucks in six in this one. Like you said, great series, and it's going to be big for Giannis and his development. What type of player can we expect from Giannis? Because this is one of those series that everyone expects him to go out and win. If he doesn't, it's start. It's time to have that conversation. Can Giannis be that guy in the playoffs? So now, moving to the Western Conference here. Clippers come back down 2-0 once again to beat the Jazz in the series. Now, looking at this Jazz team, number one seed, what went wrong with this Jazz team? It They, they just weren't. It's one of those things that it's not a glaring weakness, but they just played worse all around than they should have. Uh, a couple of things that stood out to me, they got just out-rebounded by a little bit, just a tiny bit, and it's the turnovers that were really big. The turnover margin is almost 20 just in the entire series, and uh, the Clippers had more steals and more blocks per game. When you're giving up the ball, when you're not having as many chances to score, you're probably going to lose. You need to be able to make those those opportunities count, as well as their just their shooting numbers were worse percentage-wise, and definitely at the free throw line. They were about 10% worse than the Clippers. You you have to make your free throws if you want to win in this league. Yeah, this Jazz team, I was so excited for them. I love Donovan Mitchell. I have since last postseason. I was so excited for him. When you look at this team, I don't necessarily think it was really what all went wrong. Obviously, I think defense was huge. Rudy Gobert... Um, he finished game six with a negative 24. That was his stat line he put up. And it's just not great. He was not he was not effective late. And he had no blocks. And that was no blocks in back-to-back games. That's one of the first times for him in a long time. This, when you look at this, Rudy Gobert, defensive player of the year, multiple times. He needed to play better. He needed to step up and play better. You could say that about several players on the Jazz. Need to step up and play better. But also, I'm not going to discredit just what the Clippers did. They just really played a lot better than I thought they even could. It might be the best I've seen the Clippers play in general since the Kawhi-Paul George duos come together. Last postseason, not great. This postseason, Kawhi goes down. I count him out. I'm convinced Paul George might listen to this show. He heard me say that he can't do it. He goes out there and plays fantastic. Fantastic. That's Indiana Pacers' Paul George. I sat here and said he could not do that again. But he did. I'm not I'm not going to say that the Jazz just lost this series by playing bad. I think the Clippers just outplayed them down the stretch. I mean, Terrence Mann stepped up. He stepped up for this Clippers team. Morris played well. The Clippers got players to step up that hadn't necessarily stepped up in big moments for them before and I think that's what went wrong for this Jazz team and obviously yes you can point fingers a few things that they did wrong that could have helped them out but this Clippers team 
they just played fantastic. So I'm not going to discredit what they did. Now, speaking of the Clippers, they played really well against the Jazz. And now they're moving on against the Suns. Do you actually think this Clippers team is legit, though? I don't. It's it's one thing to beat the Jazz, and the Jazz are very, very good. I think a decent amount of that is defensively. Offensively, there isn't a true number two guy next to Donovan Mitchell. Most of the scoring is on him. You have good pieces around him, but if Donovan Mitchell isn't showing up, you're you're just not going to win. On Against the Suns, if Devin Booker is having an off night, Chris Paul. Uh, one of the Camerons, be that Johnson or Payne. You're, you have a lot of options on that Suns team, and they might not be as good defensively, but offensively, I think it makes up for it. They're going to be shooting the lights out, and you're going to have to run and gun with them, and I don't think any team can do that right now. If if the Clippers want to win, if they want to be able to stay in this, they need to shoot their threes incredibly well. Against the Jazz, they shot 43% as a team from three. They need to do that again, if not better. This Clippers team, I think they are legit. I think they've played well. Players are starting to step up. They're without Kawhi Leonard and still beating the number one seed. They knocked out the number one seed. So I think they're legit, but that doesn't go to say anything about this upcoming series. The Suns are still the better team. The Clippers are just proving that they can be what we expected them to be. Finally getting to the conference finals. The Suns team, though, they're a different type of hot. Taking the defending champions out after the defending champs took a lead in the series, sweeping the Nuggets, a, yes, with no Jamal Murray, but a fantastic team still, nonetheless. And now up 2-0 on a Clippers team that just came off their best series win under this Paul George, Kawhi Leonard era. It, they're still the better team, but this Clippers team, I think they are legit. I still don't think they beat the Suns, but that doesn't go to say that they finally did what we wanted from them. Conference Finals appearance, no Kawhi Leonard. For me, getting other players to step up is huge. Now, Kawhi Leonard's availability is even bigger. So we're going to take our second break here in Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to touch on Kawhi Leonard just a little bit before we get into the Suns-Clippers matchup, and then we get into our AFC South predictions. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back in to In Sportsmanlike Conduct on KLA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And we were talking about the Clippers Jazz series a little bit. But now we're going to move into this this conference finals here. Suns Clippers. Kawhi Leonard wasn't available to the end of that Jazz series. Still not available right now for the Suns and will not play in game three. Do you think Kawhi will be available to play at all the rest of the way? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think even if the Clippers made it to... Uh, the finals, he would be able to play. I think he he went down with a knee injury. We know that. But there isn't a whole lot of information about that. But knee injuries in any sport are bad. Just terrible. In basketball, they're career killers. I don't think he's 
going like this is the end of his career or anything, but he's gonna. I believe he's gonna be out for a significant amount of time. Yeah, it it's scary too because these are the biggest games of the year. They were down to the Jazz and they trusted a Kawhi Leonardless Clippers team to go out there and try to win the series, save jobs, save careers. And now he's not going to play in Game 3, down 2-0 already to a red-hot Suns team. To me, that signals no, he won't be coming back. Now, could it change in the finals? Maybe. It's a, Maybe the timeline gets sped up a little bit. But the fact he's not playing right now, didn't play in closeout games against the Jazz, that's not good. Not good at all. And for Kawhi Leonard, a guy who has been fantastic as of late and with the Spurs and then just developed into just a true star with the Raptors, just a true number one guy with that Raptors team, it's just tough to see him go down right now because the Clippers are finally living up to that potential and you love to see Kawhi Leonard in that. This series with the Suns, last night's game, it took a putback buzzer beater that won the game for the Suns. If this was 1-1 heading back to LA and you have Kawhi Leonard, that's a series. But without Kawhi Leonard down 2-0, it puts this Clippers team in such a tough spot and it goes more to show how serious this injury is for Kawhi Leonard, the fact that he's not playing right now. And speaking of that game last night, game two, Clippers were up by one. Paul George going to the free throw line, misses both free throw attempts, allowing the Suns to get the ball back. Only down one, Suns make a, it was an alley-oop inbound pass for Jay Crowder to DeAndre Ayton. He puts it down .9 seconds remaining. Suns win and go up 2-0 on this Clippers team. Is this game going to haunt the Clippers in the rest of this series? Absolutely. And it's really going to haunt Paul George. You make one of those free throws, and the game's at least tied. At least tied if Aiton makes that shot. If you make both, they have to hit a three to tie. So just the lack of free throw shooting, it always drives me nuts because you should be able to make free throws. Any NBA player should. And not making them in crunch time is even worse. Going uh, back home to L.A., I don't think they're going to have all that much of a chance against the Suns. I'm, I'm really on the Suns' bandwagon, though. Yeah, especially with Chris Paul coming back. I mean, that's going to be huge for this team. Yes, it's going to haunt this Clippers team. It will big time. Because the possibility, the realistic possibility that the Suns get a clean three-point shot off with .9 seconds left, almost zero. Almost zero. Very improbable. But, I mean, Devin Booker, I mean, if you want anyone to shoot that shot, Devin Booker's high on my list. I mean, I would trust him to do it. But the chances are they don't make that. Clippers tie this up 1-1, heading back to LA. That's huge. That is massive for this team. It kind of reminded me a little bit, not to the as far the extent, but I talked about earlier with J.R. Smith and when he kind of a blunder there cost him that game. It just feels like morale wise, it a victory that was in your hands just got ripped away. You were about to steal one on their court 
and a victory got ripped away from you just because one mistake at the very end. That's kind of what it feels like to me. I don't think it goes to the extent of stars leaving and changing a franchise forever, but it's going to haunt this Clippers team because 2-0, I get it. They've done it twice now. I know they can do it, but they haven't played anyone like the Suns yet. This Suns team has really played different this postseason. They've played fantastic. They're red hot. Up 2-0, I just can't see them coming all the way back. They could make this an interesting series, but I cannot see them coming all the way back on this Suns team. But I said the same thing about the Jazz series, and I doubted Paul George. So I refuse to doubt Paul George again because he has proven me wrong. But I will say he did miss those two free throws, and you could have won it. So now looking at the NBA Finals prediction here, who do you think represents each side? You said the Hawks in the East. Who's your Western team? Uh, Suns all the way. And so that means uh, the Finals would be Suns and Hawks. I'm going Suns in five. The only reason the Hawks steal one is because Trey Young just goes absolutely crazy, scoring like 50, 60 in a game. And then the Suns close it out, though. So Suns in five, I, I have a very good feeling about that. Yeah, and I had the Bucks coming out of the East. So I'm going with the Suns as well, and the Suns coming out on top. I think six games, Suns take the Bucks out. They just don't have the offense to keep up with the Suns, and no one does currently left. It's just going to take really good defense and some stars playing fantastic. Now the Bucks had that opportunity. Like you said, Trey Young was taking a game from them, a star stepping up big. And this Clippers team, I mean, they got the stars, but I don't it's not going to be able to win a series with them. So now we're going to shift over to the NFL. And we're making our way to week one in the beginning of the NFL season. And on our way there, we've done our predictions each week. Record predictions among the divisions. Next up is the AFC South. We're looking at the Jaguars, Texans, Colts, and Titans. So now looking at this division, who wins? Titans won it last year. Do they repeat? I think they do repeat. You lost a couple pieces on defense, but I think overall, as a team defensively, they are a little bit above average, which is good enough because their offense is terrifying. Juggernaut levels of scary. They have Tannehill, who's, I'd say, a top 15 quarterback, and given the system he plays in, he can... Uh, be a little better Derrick Henry best running back in the league just straight up best running back in the league and then you add Julio Jones to that I I think they're easily winning this division It Indianapolis might put up a little bit of a fight but Tennessee is going to take it easily for me I have them uh, at 14-3 and three. This Titans team, the front office forced me to change my record prediction because they added in Julio Jones. But I made a quick adjustment. I had the Titans winning the division as well, coming in at 13-4. And you touched on the offense and all that they do, and that's going to be scary. And Arthur Smith leaving, will that affect them a little bit? Maybe. We'll see. But with that, that caliber of offense, they should be just fine moving forward. But I look at this defense. Last year, I believe they were ranked 25th, 28th, somewhere in there in terms of overall defense. They made big picks, big splashes, 
in free agency to help fix this defense. You look at Bud Dupree. There's one. One of the better free agent pass rushers out there, they bring him in. And then you look at first-round pick, Caleb Farley. Some rated him the best corner in the draft. Now you have two key pieces added to your defense, a star-studded offense, good coach team. Mike Vrabel's done a fantastic job with this team. I don't. I have the Colts relatively close to them, but still two or three games back of this Titans team because I think that they're going to be that good. Their schedule is going to be tough. It's going to be a tough road to get there. They're going to have matchups that could swing this record one way or the other. But for me, I still think 13-4 is very realistic for this team. I mean, A.J. Brown's a number one receiver. He's, in my opinion, the best receiver to come out of the 2019 draft class. I think he's a little bit better than D.K. If I was to take an overall wide receiver, I'd want A.J. Brown. And you put a top three receiver in the NFL next to A.J. Brown with, like you said, the best running back in the NFL. This team can be dangerous. And I think it all is going to depend on that defense. Now, regular season-wise, I think they go right through. But the defense is going to be the big factor come playoff time. They're going to have to step up because this offense can score with Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs. They can keep up with the Browns offense, the Ravens offense. But can they get a big stop at the end to close those games out? That's my biggest question mark with this team. I think they've done enough to maybe be able to do that. So now second... In the AFC South, who do you have coming up there? I have Indianapolis. I was very high on Indianapolis last season. And overall, I think they're about the same team. The biggest thing that jumps out is they're getting uh, Marlon Mack back at the running back. And they're changing quarterbacks. Phillip Rivers was... I'd say not great in his one year in Indianapolis. I think he's going to be, I think Carson Wentz. I, I'm i kind of high on Carson Wentz. I think he's going to revitalize his career. We saw he had the opportunity, we saw he has the talent to be an MVP. And I think with good weapons around him, a fantastic offensive line. He's going to return to at least decent form, serviceable form, and the Colts' defense is uh, one of the top in the league. I don't think they're going to be able to hang with Tennessee, but that wild card spot at 12-5 and five looks pretty good. I have the Colts in second as well, coming in at 11-6. and six. And when I look at this Colts team, you talked about wins. And there's a lot of things I think that are far improved with this Colts team, and it starts with the team. And then, obviously, look at Frank Wright, old offensive coordinator in Philadelphia. He's an MVP under him. MVP caliber player. If he would have finished the year, would have probably won MVP that year, I should say. But I look at this team. They always nail the NFL draft. This team is so well-drafted, and this year I think is just another example of that. When you look at who fell to them in the first round, it was Quiddy Pay, defensive end for Michigan. And Quiddy Pay wasn't my favorite pass rusher in the class, but at the slot that they got him, very high value. I believe the Colts are picking 21st in the draft, 21st, 22nd. And they were able to get Quiddy Pay there at that spot. Another year of Jonathan Taylor in that backfield. And 
Also getting Marlon Mack back from injury, that would be a nice duo in the backfield. And like you said, that defense, fantastic. Quiddy Pay, DeForest Buckner, Darius Leonard, Kenny Moore. This team's dangerous as long and they also have one of the best O lines in football. They did lose their starting left tackle, but I still think this team finds a way to be successful and overcome that. They filled that position as well. This Colts team for me, eleven and six. I'm with you. They don't keep up with the Titans. They fall a little bit short, but I'm excited for this team. I think the way it's been built has it it's sustained for a lot of success. I think this team why I don't think they're as good as the Titans outlasts the Titans in terms of how long they're good for. Because this Titans team with that move for Julio, it was a great deal. They I mean, look at what they gave up for him. But they're kind of going all in. They're starting to take that mentality that other teams are. And if you want to compete in the AFC, you have to. You have to go all in. But this Colts team for me, eleven and six, I think they're still that border, that wild card team, one that hasn't traded everything to go all in quite yet. But next offseason, a disappointing playoff game, maybe they're the ones making the big trade or a big signing that tries to put them over the top. So now, going through the AFC South, a little bit more here. Third spot in the division, who do you have coming in there? It's it's a big drop-off from the 12-5 and Indianapolis Colts to Jacksonville at 3-14. and They're going to be bad. You got, you got Trevor Lawrence. End of list. That's that's pretty much your team. You were just bad all season. You're bringing in a good, a very good quarterback, number one pick in the draft, but there isn't a whole lot around him that I find encouraging. I think you overpaid for some guys in free agency. Your draft past Lawrence was kind of weird. Getting ETN... It, it just doesn't seem like a position of need when you have the running back on your roster who's a 1,000-yard rusher already to pick a running back in the first round when there are positions of need that you could have gone much... You could have gotten a more needy position and filled that easily, and you probably could have taken ETN with your second-round pick. So I have them just being bad again. Three and fourteen. I'm I'm I want to see Trevor Lawrence really show out and prove me wrong, but my hot take has been Jacksonville's kind of going to ruin Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I'm a little bit higher on Jacksonville, not too much higher. Don't get me wrong. I have them at five and twelve, and when I look at what they did this off season, one thing that doesn't make sense to me. There's things that happen. I agree that don't make sense. One of which, the best threat you got him in terms of a receiver was analyst last year in Tim Tebow. I mean, that's who you brought in to be his like one of his legit targets. You brought in Marvin Jones. Nice, but you have so much money. There's guys like Kenny Galladay out there and you settle for Marvin Jones very early in free agency at that. And then DJ Chark is a guy I was a fan of, wide receiver from LSU. And Urban Myers talked about how he's not a huge fan of DJ Chark and he's made it open to the public that he's not a huge fan that's your number one receiver LaVisca Chenault Jr. from Colorado I think he's going to be very exciting to watch and the ETN pick I don't see why you did it but 
if you use him correctly, can be a really good pick. I'm not a fan of taking a running back. I'm a fan of taking a running back in that spot, but not one if you already have a guy like James Robinson, like you said. But if they can use him correctly, use him as a third down back, a receiving back, that's where James Robinson is not the best. He still is a receiving threat, but not nearly as good as Travis Etienne. They've actually also started to use ETN out of the slot a little bit in a receiver role. To me, that signals they're going to try to use him as Christian McCaffrey. And if that's the case, maybe then I see why you did it. If you're using him all over the place and not just as a running back and you get him on the field with James Robinson, okay. Maybe I can see why you did that. But just the free agency for the Jaguars I thought was really weird. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Bringing in Shaq Griffin. Last year in Seattle, he really wasn't that good. Really wasn't that great. But I'm excited for Lawrence. He's been one of my favorite prospects. I've been a fan of his for a while. It is worrisome, like you said. Will he be a bust or not? It's worrisome, but I think it comes down to what Urban Meyer can do as an NFL head coach. And I'm not willing to bet that he's going to do all that great. I'm not. So for me... Jags come in at 5-12, and 12, picking in the top 10 once again next year, and that's what this team needs. They still need more, and I mean, if they use their money right for agency, maybe they're a team ready to try to fight for a bottom-end wild card around 8-9 wins. But the way they used it, the draft, the kind of strange draft they had, I'm not excited for this team, but I am excited for Trevor Lawrence just because I've wanted to see him on an NFL field since he beat Alabama in the national championship game. That's when he was ready for this. So now, last spot in the AFC South here. Each of us have the Texans remaining. What record do you have them coming in at? I have them at 1-16. I was so close to putting them at no wins. I was so close. But last year, the Jets found a way to win some games and they had Adam Gase and I think Adam Gase is just the end all be all in terrible coaching so I have Houston getting one win it, they're just bad all around bad no first round pick this year which went to Miami no quarterback as of right now they don't have Deshaun Watson. No real talent anywhere on the roster. And your front office is an absolute mess. The Texans are going to be bad this year. And I think they're going to be bad for a long time. And I'm not talking like kind of okay 500 bad. I'm talking Lions bad. Just no playoffs ever bad. Yeah, this team without Deshaun Watson, and right now it's still up in the air if he'll ever play in the NFL again. This team is, I can't even use a different word than you used. It's terrible. It's bad. It's awful. And I went ahead and did it. 0-17. I went for it. I went all in on this pick. I got the Texans going 0-17. And when you look at this team, what they added in the offseason, there was one addition that this team made that I thought, oh, wow, I kind of like that. It was slot corner Desmond King, former All-Pro, All-Pro returner. I was like, okay, I like that. I really do. I'm a big fan of that move. 
Then I look at other moves they've made. They brought in Mark Ingram. Okay, you already have David Johnson. So now you have two older, underperforming running backs. Then you find a way to bring in Phillip Lindsay, who's a young, underperforming running back. It's a change of pace. It's it's a nice change of pace. But then you bring in guys like Randall Cobb. I mean, you have Randall Cobb still around. And then you bring in also Rex Burkhead. I don't know what you're building here. Do we need five starting caliber running backs in this team, plus Randall Cobb and Brandon Cooks being your number one receivers? Like, what are we building with this team? You trade away J.J. Watt. You traded away DeAndre Hopkins the year before. And up until these allegations came out, seemed likely Deshaun Watson was going to be traded as well. You went from a playoff team, playoff roster, to me predicting you to go 0-17 in a matter of a year. That is wild. This is the downfall of this Texans team. And I really do. I feel bad, really bad, for the head coach right now, the Houston Texans. Because right now, he's just a scapegoat. He's going to get fired in a year, year and a half, when this team, like I have it, doesn't win a game. He'll get fired and they'll blame him on the way out just to keep the front office set. We talk about front offices that are poorly ran. The Texans are near the top. They're catching Washington football team bad. The football team improved a little bit, but, I mean, ownership of the football team is still terrible. And then you have the Texans. They're catching up to him right now. You have Easterby there, Cal McNair, I mean, two guys that if I was a full player would not want to play for. And then you look at what else they got. You got Nick Casario. He's not proven anything. It, it just because you coached or played at New England doesn't mean you're going to be good in the front office of uh, the Texans. I truly believe that this Texans team is going to scapegoat people. Sean Watson probably won't play for them. Even if the allegations, um, something happens and he does play, it won't be for the Houston Texans. He's not going to play for this team, especially with what they've done this offseason. This team, I went when I did my predictions, I went game by game each week and picked win-loss, win-loss. I did not feel comfortable picking this team in a single game. Not a single game. This team has issues all over the place, and it's a shame because they were a playoff team just two short years ago with a playoff victory in that, making it to the divisional round. So enough of talking about the Texans. We're going to take our last break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to get into a comment made by Tom Brady on the HBO show, The Barbershop. If you're not familiar with the comment, it won't be said over air, so you might have to look it up on your own. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KLA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And so now we're going to get into that Tom Brady comment I alluded to before the first break. Tom Brady was on the barbershop, and he was talking about his free agency experience. He was talking about a team that wasn't in on him at the very end. He couldn't help but wonder why they were sticking with their quarterback. Now, he said that in worse terms than that. But that was the message sent by what he said. Now, looking at his comments, we know the teams that were interested in him and the teams that backed out. Who do you think he's talking about? I think he's talking about the Raiders. Just the the amount of, or lack thereof, with success 
they have not had any success there. Really, it's just a not a good team right now. There isn't enough talent overall. And Derek Carr has been okay sometimes. He's been he's shown flashes of being good, but not much consistency. And it's the amount of time that he's been there and has not showed enough that that makes me think all right it's it's the raiders he just i i feel like he was brady was kind of annoyed with that that someone wasn't fully in on him yeah and for me i did see a report that said it was the tight they think it was the titans because Tannehill, he wasn't proven quite yet. They got knocked out in the championship game because he couldn't step up. Vrabel played with Brady. There was a rumored interest that they were uh, interested in playing together, or coach player, together again. And then obviously what Tennessee has, Derek Brown, AJ, uh, Derek Henry, A.J. Brown, excuse me. They have a fantastic team. But for me, who I think he was talking about in that, look no further than his former teammate, who plays on his on Tom Brady's favorite childhood team. I think he's talking about the 49ers. I think he's talking about Jimmy Garoppolo. It is very well known that Jimmy Garoppolo and Tom Brady did not get along when they were in New England. Jimmy Garoppolo was this young gun. Head coach loved him. He said that he was ready to take over and that he thought at times he was better than Tom Brady. Obviously, he's not, but you got to love the confidence, right? Looking at Tom Brady, though, I mean, he brought the Patriots from just this franchise that really not much success to the greatest dynasty you could argue in sports history. Now, Belichick, Brady, their relationship frayed over that because obviously Belichick made it known that he wanted to roll with Garoppolo. And Robert Kraft said, no, we're not doing that. You trade Jimmy. And that's what's going to happen because they couldn't afford both. And that's why they had to get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo. Then you get into the stories that he wanted to send him to the 49ers because he trusted John and Kyle and all that. Looking at it, I mean, Tom Brady, his wish list came out after he made his pick. And at the top of the list was the 49ers. And you think, okay, makes sense. He was there for the catch in 1982. He grew up a 49ers fan. Grew up in California. His favorite team, San Fran. Favorite player ever, Joe Montana. So, yes, the ties are there. And then also, I mean, there's already animosity between Jimmy and Tom Brady. Brady locked Jimmy Garoppolo out of his personal gym and wouldn't let him in one day when he invited the team to come work out. It is very petty between those two, and they play it off well. Uh, And it's interesting, when Jimmy Garoppolo made the Super Bowl, he said, have you talked to Tom Brady? He goes, oh, yeah, he texted me. But it was real kind of, he had to think about it for a second. He didn't really text him. I don't believe that for a second. When you look at it, I think it's the Niners. Brady wanted to end up there. Doesn't like Jimmy Garoppolo. Reason to call him that specific name? I think so. So I think 49ers were the team that Tom Brady said that about. And looking at this offseason now, there's been some key free agents that are still out there. But in a normal offseason, when the cap space is correct and not down, would be on rosters. But right now, still unsigned, 
training camp starting in about a month for most teams, if not a little bit less. We're going to go through several key veteran players still out there in free agency and decide if they're going to retire or if we see them signing with the team sometime in this next season. First one we have up is Frank Gore. You think retirement is his way out, or does he play one more year? I think he's going to retire. He is just one of the best all-time backs in terms of length of career. Just an incredibly long career. Very durable, but at this point, he's 38. And for a running back, that's just very, very old. I don't I don't think he he's gonna get signed somewhere. Maybe he might in training camp, but I don't think he's gonna be a day one roster guy. That's that's where I think he kind of goes separate ways with teams. If I I think he's just not fast enough, he doesn't have the same athleticism that he used to to be able to produce in the NFL, and he's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I I think he retires as well. And he's made it clear he'd like to come to San Francisco and play one more year, if not come back and retire. It's a shame because when you look at what Frank Gore has done over his career, coming out of college, he tore both of his ACLs in college, and then he comes to the NFL and everyone says he's not going to last. He doesn't have the durability to last in the NFL, which was the last thing, which is so wrong. Absolute last thing you could say about this guy is he's not durable. And actually, a fun story, uh, the former 49ers GM, Scott McLuhan, said that he actually had to falsify Frank Gore's 40 time to help the, help the Niners scouts want to draft him. He clocked him in at a 4-7, and this was after his uh, second ACL surgery, and Scott McLuhan said he he didn't come in at no four seven four six, and uh, it just it's funny to look at it now that he's had a fantastic NFL career. Currently number three rushing yards all time. He's one of only three backs in the sixteen thousand yard club, and when you look at it, it's also a little bit of a shame because he last season he was nearly seven hundred yards, about six fifty three is where he came in at. He's only 726 yards shy of going into the second all-time. It's so close. I think he retires, too. I don't think uh, someone picks him up. If the salary cap was normal, I think a team picks him up for his veteran presence, and he gets a decent load, nothing too heavy. A number two, number three back, at best. But with the salary cap the way it is, I just don't see any teams having the ability to pay him and bring him in. He's not going to demand a whole lot. That's not what it is. But just in terms of team, there's a lot of teams that are very close to the salary cap already and need to have money in case an injury happens throughout the year. They can't afford the luxury that is Frank Gore at this point. So I think he retires and it just a fantastic career for him if this is it. But now moving on to our next one, it's Richard Sherman, longtime Seahawk corner, former 49er corner, still out in free agency, and he's said that he expects to sign for training camp. Do you think that's the case, though? I'm not sure, but I do think he's going to sign somewhere. He might not be 
what he was in Seattle. He might not be Legion of Boom Richard Sherman, but he's still a capable corner. And there are teams out there that don't have that. So I I think he's going to go somewhere. And it's also the fact that he's not all that old. He's only 33, which, you know, not not young, but I think he's going to get signed somewhere. I think he's too young to retire. Yeah, and I, I agree. He's signed somewhere. You a team like the Saints, a team even like the 49ers, and some of these top NFC contenders, you're going to tell me they couldn't use a guy like Richard Sherman? The speed, it, the, it's not there as much as it was. The burst is still there, but the long-distance speed isn't. If he goes to a team that plays a lot of zone defense, he will be fantastic. You look at what he did with the Legion of Boom. I mean, top corner of the decade. He was that good. And then you look at San Francisco in 2019, he put up great numbers as well. He was fantastic throughout the playoff run. He still has it. He said he wants to play till he's 35, so that gives him two more years. He's already set two years, and he's done. He's going to go off into retirement. He's one of the smartest players in the NFL in terms of setting himself up. The way he knows route combinations and what can be coming at him based off of what the number one receiver is doing, you don't, that's not taught to everybody. That's just something that he's been gifted with and that he's worked hard to know. With Richard Sherman, any contender, especially his own defense, would be smart to bring him in. Get him in your secondary because, 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 because sure, he's not going to be able to chase around a number one receiver all day like he used to, but he can still be a very smart corner, very smart player on your defense. And also, he said he's open to the possibility of moving to safety. That also opens up another avenue. Safety, needy team. I think he's just waiting till training camp because, one, we've seen NFL players, they've wanted to get rid of OTAs, mini camps. They think they're kind of pointless. I think he's waiting till training camp because he doesn't feel like he needs to participate in those anymore. He's 33. He's been doing it a long time. So, for me... I think Sherm signs right before training camp. I'd be surprised if he's not on the roster by the time camps open up for everybody. Now going to Larry Fitzgerald, the long, long time Arizona Cardinal wide receiver. Will he get signed or will he go into retirement? I think he's going to go into retirement. The only way he is not retiring is if he gets a contract with the Cardinals. That's the only way he's going to stay active in the league and I'm not really sure the Cardinals need him right now he's been a fantastic receiver for so long but I think it's 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 close to his ending time he's 37 that's definitely up there for a wide receiver and he wasn't great last year he was he was a dependable receiver if you got the ball to him he would catch it but his route running's fallen off. He's not as fast as he was. And just the athleticism isn't really there. I could see him only going to the Cardinals. That's pretty much it. Other than that, I think he's he's going out this year. Yeah, I, a retirement for me as well. Because he's already said multiple times he's only playing for the Arizona Cardinals. He'd retire before he went anywhere else. Cardinals have A.J. Green, DeAndre Hopkins, Christian Kirk. Where does he fit within that team? This is it for him. Larry Fitzgerald, though, it's 
odd going through these lists of players. Last three we've gone through, and two more that we'll get to. All just fantastic players throughout my childhood. Just the absolute best at their positions. All going into retirement, and we're debating if they're going to get signed. And these were guys five, six years ago that were all pro, top of the game at their position. But Larry Fitzgerald, I think it should be this way for him, retiring. I'm normally not a fan of just only staying with the one team because that team not necessarily doesn't necessarily have that loyalty to you. But Larry Fitzgerald, going to be 38 years old. It It's over, and I would hate for him to go to another team for a year just to have to retire after that. I would hate to see that. So for me, I think what's going to happen is he won't retire. He'll stay active, uh, in quotes there. And if the Cardinals have an injury at the wide receiver position, in comes Larry Fitzgerald. He takes care of that. But he won't play for anybody else. The only possible team would be the Minnesota Vikings. That was his hometown team growing up. Grew up in Minneapolis. He was the ball boy for the Vikings. That's the only possible team I could see him playing for. And so now we're going to move to Adrian Peterson. Fantastic running back over his career. He started to bounce around the league. Does he got anywhere else to go this offseason? I don't think so. He, Like you said, he bounced around after he was with the Vikings, went to the Saints, didn't really do a whole lot there. Cardinals, again, not much. He was decent with the Washington football team. Kind of just kept... He was he was a placeholder, essentially. Uh, then he went to the Lions this past season, and he he didn't do anything too special. He was an okay back. Uh, I think he's going to retire. the The real only way I can see him getting a contract is part of the way through the year, if a couple. Uh, running backs go down for the same team and they just need someone to carry the ball I think Adrian Peterson is up there on that list yeah once again just another guy that I think cap space is the reason he won't be on a roster teams can't afford to bring in Adrian Peterson as a running back two or three and a lot of teams running back two or three unless you've already have a young duo on your team they can't afford to bring in guys now so many teams so tight in the cap space. Adrian Peterson just won't fit. Most number two, number three running backs this upcoming year are going to be guys on rookie deals. If you're start, Unless you're starters on a rookie deal. That's the only way you can even look to afford a guy like this. Teams had to find ways to save money. And the running back position in today's league, it's very undervalued. And I know running backs, they get some contracts get up to about 15, 16 million. But in terms of how they use you I mean running backs I mean they're some are true receivers true running backs and they I mean, Le'Veon Bell back in the day was touching the ball over 400 times a year over 400 times a year and he was only making I think on the tag at most he was getting about eight eight to ten that's all he was making that was on a tag and they got rid of him before he ever even got paid so that's what happens with the running back position and what makes it even more tough for a guy like Adrian Peterson who is getting up there in age, 36 years old now. So tough for him to get a spot in the league today. And now we're going to shift to some MLB talk here. And looking at what's been going on in the MLB, 
pitchers now are being checked for foreign substances on their hat, um, jerseys, and also their belt now. And when you look at it, the way the league's going, there's people that complain about the pace of the game. Should this be added to the game today, these checks? I think it should. Uh, just the it, there's two things that are up against Major League Baseball right now. It's pace of play and balls in play. And right now, I think pace of play is okay. Uh, this definitely, pitchers being checked for foreign substances, definitely does slow it down a little bit. But you've already implemented rules to speed it up. It, what this does is definitely increases the amount of balls in play. It reduces spin rate and essentially makes pitchers a little worse. Before they implemented this, the really hard checks and punishments on foreign substances, the league-wide batting average was at an all-time low, or probably a low for the past 20 years, if not longer, and the strikeouts were at an all-time high. So I think it's definitely necessary. Possibly it could be a little drawn back as the year goes on or into next year, but I think players' reactions are a little more than necessary. Yeah, and should they be doing it? I agree with you. I think that should be uh, in the game. I think in terms of finding a way to appease the players as well as keep the game flowing, I think is going to be huge in this. I'll get into some player reactions here in just a minute, but how they've been doing it so far, some cases have gone over well, some have not. And I wasn't didn't know a whole lot about the situation when it first kind of came down, but listening to Tyler Glasnow's uh, comments about foreign substances, he said that he uses it, and it, him not using it led to his injury, his UCL injury that he had. He had a very interesting comment I would recommend anyone to go listen to the video about him talking about it because it was really in-depth in what he went over that being said I still think this is something that should be done I mean batters have been talked about for years in terms of different tests they have to do try to keep them all natural you could say I think that it should be the same for pitchers as well and now in terms of the players reactions some are out there. Sergio Romo, uh, that was a lot. Um, but it was a funny video to watch. It's going to be very meme-worthy uh, for years to come. But over the top a little bit. Some, I think, are warranted just a little bit. I know, I believe it was in the Nationals game. It was Joe Girardi. He had a second, uh, he won a second test done. And the pitcher was very upset by it. And it's situations like that where I think it needs a little bit more work in terms of how you're going to test, figure out, check. That's my only concern right now. But in terms of player reactions at this point, some are just funny to watch. Uh, some guys have handled it great, like Jacob deGrom. He was fantastic about it. He said, hey, do you need to check this, this, this? Done. Walks off. And that's the way it went. So as of right now, funny to watch. But some, I think, are warranted, like in the Nats game. Yeah, definitely that's that's where the line is 
with that Nationals game is it's fair to test them coming on the mound or coming off the mound. But when you get like that kind of request, like, hey, can you make sure this guy doesn't have anything, any foreign substances during the middle of an inning, pitchers are very rhythm-based. It's all about establishing a rhythm and sticking to that and having to be checked for a foreign substance definitely messes with your rhythm so I think Max Scherzer's uh, reaction was warranted and that's where you get into the worry about pace of play it's not all that bad if a guy comes off the mound he shows you his glove his hat his belt it that's fine but when you have to go out there in the middle of an inning then the pitcher is going to be upset both managers are going to come out and it's a whole 25 minute ordeal that's when you worry about pace of play yeah and also you look at that situation too I mean you talked about the rhythm based with the pitchers it now you're giving an advantage to opposite teams in a way in the game where you're able to have that check done in the middle of the inning especially a guy like Scherzer who's been great for so long now you're starting to mess with some veterans and now that's where you're going to get some people upset some players really upset with guys like these veteran guys like Scherzer who have done it the right way for quite a while so now looking at Wander Franco's debut here he went two for four with the walk a home run and three RBIs will he live up to the hype that he's gotten being the top prospect I think he will I'm just a huge Wander Franco fan. He's been absolutely fantastic in his in his uh, career throughout the minor leagues. He's been uh, the couple games he's had uh, really one game and then one that's going on right now. He's been just fantastic, absolutely incredible. And his first at bat is what sticks out to me the most. He starts 0-2, and then in a row, four stone-cold takes for a walk. Absolutely great eye. He's just a great all-around player. He can hit for average. Has probably one of the best hit tools of any prospect right now. People are saying it's between 70 and 80 on the 2080 scale. He has a great eye and can even hit for power. His defense, probably anywhere on the infield, corner outfield maybe if you want to put him there. But he's been just great in the minors and in the very limited sample size we have of Wander Franco in the like one and a half game he's played, he's been great. Very, He looks like a veteran up there. He's going the other way with pitches. He's taking tough uh, tough balls that are right on the corner and getting walks. I, I think he's going to be very good for a very long time. Yeah, and asking will he live up to the hype, if anything, I think he's making it more difficult to live up to the hype because he's played so fantastic in his first game. I mean, it's there's a difference in between going out there in your first game and playing well. He went out there and played fantastic, had a great showing right off the bat, it instantly takes him up a notch. Like, okay, you've done this. We need to see more from you. And so for me, 
I think he will. Anyone that handles that type of situation like that, I think definitely will be able to live up to the hype that they've been given. And there's a reason that we talk about different busts in sports, but there's a reason these guys get hyped up because they have proven they can do it. And he's just proving now he can do it with the best of the best. And one thing that I thought was so awesome was it was his dad. He was out in the crowd taking a video of his son up the bat, and he hits a home run. And just the reaction from his dad was priceless. And it was really just a cool moment. And it's awesome how sports can give you a moment like that, just such a memorable person moment when you think of sports, these big uh, big plays, things like that. But it's things like that that also sports can bring to you. And now looking at what he can do in terms of helping this Rays team, do you think he's going to be a big help to this team, or is he? can he right the ship? I think he can. They were on a couple-game skid. They got swept by the uh, Mariners, which never feels good. Uh, but he's. I think he can really give a jump start to this Rays team. Right now, they're up uh, five to one on the Red Sox. He he just has the ability to do so much for that team, hitting and defensively, that it's it's not necessarily having an MVP, but it's probably the closest thing you're gonna get while not being an MVP. He's gonna do so much for that team. In one game, he had point two WAR. I don't know what the record for most war in a game is, but that's that's pretty good right there. Yeah, and then also, I mean, you talked about what he can bring to this team. I mean, what he can do to spark this team. Also, I mean, this fan base wanting to see this guy play, the excitement behind him, now seeing him out there on the diamond, and I mean, his play is going to speak for itself moving forward. And I think he keeps this up. And I, the Rays, I think they do right the ship. Three and seven in the last ten especially with the excitement from him, they'll write that and they'll get the lead back in the AL East. So that concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, look us up at KLA underscore UC. Give us a like and a follow as well. And if you're on Facebook, look us up at Unsportsmanlike Conduct. That concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. Thank you for listening and good night. See ya.